0: I know that there are a lot of things on uh, people's minds for this Sunday, Um, and I've said this four times, and I've been wrong four times. This should be a pretty brief sermon. Um, The theme is going to be triangulation. We're going to continue on with our sermon, our series on the church and science. This is going to be number five. We started this series back almost two years ago in uh, October, I believe, of 2015. And said the theme is sort of triangulation. What I would like to do is take the first three sermons, and they were sort of disparate. We kind of hopped along. There is an underlying current to all of this. There's an underlying. There are a number of underlying themes to the series, and I wanted to sort of tie things together a little bit, spend a little bit of time, ground things. Um, the bad news, though, is that if you're not familiar with the series, some of this stuff isn't going to make sense. I'm going to start with what I'm calling Dave's post Roman history of the West in three minutes. About 1,200 years ago, the Roman Empire fell in on itself, and Europe is plunged into what historians commonly call the Dark Ages. After about 400 years of these ages that were supposedly dark, uh, Europe sees the first glimmerings of what historians commonly call the Renaissance. Simply said, the Renaissance was sort of a hearkening back or a resurgence or resurrection of Greco-Roman style by style, uh, art, architecture, politics to some people. Uh, critics have pointed out that while the Greeks some um, 1,500 years prior to the seminal days of the Renaissance had certainly advocated and even utilized democracy, um, <clears throat> democracy was not really realized during the period of the Renaissance, especially during the early part of the Renaissance um, monarchies, whether you like them or not, were basically the state of the state, so to say. And so um, in England, you had the beginning of the Edwardian crown. In France, you had the beginning of of the uh, Philippian crown, around the 13th century. About four centuries downstream, we're just going to say the 1600s, we have the emergence of the Enlightenment. I always use quotes, the Enlightenment. I'm doing little air quotes here. Um, it can be said that the Enlightenment was born from a cocktail of intellectual movements that included rationalism, empiricism, naturalism, certainly. Um, in much the vein that the Renaissance uh, was a hearkening back to earlier times, it can also be said that the Enlightenment was a hearkening back to earlier thinking, especially the rationalism that we saw with the early Greeks, Aristotle. And there was also, so this is a two Eurocentric, There is also an ancient, a fairly well known ancient, um, Indian or Eastern thinker named um, Kannada. <clears throat> the Enlightenment was also born, consequently, of special antecedents, namely the Scientific Revolution. The Scientific Revolution, the Church and Science. Um, which, in my opinion, this is debatable, um, really starts to come into focus with the um, popularity or the mainstream application of mathematics to describe natural phenomena. So, Call that for the sake of creating our little chronology about 500 years ago. And so, um, Alia Iacta Est, as far as technology is concerned, we have uh, Da Vinci's revised camera obscura, we have Copernican celestial motion, we have the telescope, we have the industrial revolution, we have assembly lines, transistors, lasers, and ultimately microwavable tater tots. Okay, that's it. I don't know how long that took. I was going to f- fiddle around with a stopwatch, but I think that's roughly about three minutes, maybe three and a half minutes. Okay, now what I'm calling my uh, postmodern secular humanist narrative. Postmodern secular humanist narrative. And I cobbled this together. This is something I put together, okay? And I'm not trying to set up a straw man here. I put this together. This is, and you probably heard this narrative in a lot of different flavors, a lot of different ways, from different people, non-believers, academically. Um, and I sort of went over the top with it, with uh, especially in terms of idealism. And the reason I did that was just to make sort of the setup easier. But actually, um, as, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in about three minutes, um, you can apply... The series in general, the Church and Science, so just about any flavor of this narrative you like. Um, and you know, humanism, you don't know humanism, and I'm not a student of the humanist movement, really, but it has really changed. It has really evolved to default and, and, and morphed over the decades. Um, okay, so here it goes, calling my postmodern secular humanist narrative, and it's got a lot of idealism in it. Um, measurement, quantification bestows value. An electron passing through a semiconductor can be measured and its course replicated. On the other hand, things like spirit, soul, purpose, and even God are difficult, if not impossible, to measure and certainly difficult, if not impossible, to replicate. Since we cannot measure these things, we cannot ascertain their existence, and without existential evidence, we can infer nothing of their value. And without evidence to the contrary we cannot reject the hypothesis that they are valueless. I'm speaking speaking for somebody else. Therefore, such fantasies are to be returned to the mythologies from which they originate. All intellectual enterprises concerned with them can be relegated to fancies of imagination and be safely handed over to musicians, poets, and coffee shop philosophers. Almost as if on cue, we uh, we see the entrance of Campbellian psychology in the middle 20th century, which among other things, essentially asserts that all myths are the same myth. And so now, the narrative goes, by conveniently dispensing with a lone myth and empowered by, this is what I mean by idealism, and empowered by scientific reasoning, humankind can finally get down to the business of self-actualization, self-realization, through the evolution and perfection of technology, and through reason, the forgings of systems of social justice. Do that without laughing. In this way, so the narrative goes, Humankind alone will ultimately attain freedom, autonomy, and self destiny. That's my version of the postmodern secular narrative with a lot of idealism in there. Okay, and if it hasn't been sort of just obvious in what's led up to this moment here, um, a goal of this series is to reaffirm for believers and perhaps annoy non believers that that narrative that I just gave, and a lot of variants of that narrative that you may commonly hear is are exactly incorrect. They're not just wrong. That narrative isn't just wrong. And a lot of the secular narratives that you'll hear like it are not just wrong. They're a very special kind of wrong. They're the kind of error that you only get when all of your basic precepts precepts have been flipped 180 degrees. And I have this as an aside. Should I should have kept track of time. Um, I said that that was over the top. It was idealistic, that narrative. And like I said, I'm sure you've heard variants of that um, yourselves. Um, but if you ever want to convince yourself of the wrongness of humanist, especially idealist paradigms, simply read humanist literature. And humanists do more to basically disparage and rag and contradict The what may be called humanist at that time or a prior time or a future time than anything I could ever do. And just a couple of really quick examples. One of my favorites, um, the the father of marketing, Ernest Dichter, um, his entire humanist, his entire point of view, his entire career, have you ever seen the the television show Mad Men? The whole history of marketing and the transition from sort of rational storytelling to kind of, uh, appeal to fear and irrational, um, you know, rational appeals to people, people's behavior. Um, he, his entire work is based on the uh, fundamental irrationality of human behavior. Um, Kurt Vonnegut, a very well-known um, humanist, probably one of the most memorable scenes, um, one of his most memorable literary scenes, takes place in his novel slaughterhouse 5 I don't know if you've read that. Um, There's also a movie version of it. I can't remember if the movie version, how they tried to detail the scene. But um, in this scene, um, a character, Edgar Darby, is executed for the trivial act of saving a teapot from the rubble of Dresden. And Vonnegut, who's a very concise writer, sort of very much out of character, gives this kind of really vivid lamentation over just kind of the bizarre irony and hysteria of that kind of really draconian reaction to what was really a sort of trivial violation of anti-looting protocol during World War II. Okay. Tying things together. So I'm going to do we're going to revisit Sermon 1, Sermon 2, Sermon 3, go through some bullet points and then I'll lead us out in prayer and then we'll have Banded with his golden pipes, lead us out with the doxology. Okay, sermon one was just a discussion, a very secular and very sort of topical and brief um, examination of what we would consider scientific thinking. And there were three theses. Three theses. Um, The first thesis, which is really foundational, is that while it is certainly true that the Enlightenment was a transformative period, it did not produce scientific thinking. It's a common mistake people make. They think that suddenly we have this transition in human thought and human progress, the Renaissance, the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, and boom, all of a sudden scientific thinking just fell from the sky. Completely false. We looked at an example of the fishing net that was recovered by archaeologists that was dated, at say, 10,000 years ago. And the the people who worked on that net and made that net and maybe made their livelihoods and supported the village with fish, uh, employing that fishing net, um, you know, they did not have Excel spreadsheets, they did not have T-tests. But nonetheless, they knew how to be crafts, craftsmen and how to fashion a better fishing net. That's exactly what scientific thinking is. And then uh, the second thesis, almost as an aside, um, we looked at that the machine that uh, manufactures integrated circuits. This is fascinating to think that those machines exist. Of course they exist because we all use integrated circuits. Um, and, uh, but they're actually machines that make those. If you can imagine, that's just how microscopic those, like the channels and the whatever the detail of those wafers they call them. Um, and the point of that was that maybe sort of an irony of technology that um, it turns out that technology, a fruit of really probably the most recognizable fruit of science, um, really eschews scientific thinking. I mean, professions and technology are generally professions where people follow protocol. Yeah, scientific thinking is about experimentation, trying new things. So try this, try that, and we'll just think about it from your own experience. Like if you take your car into the shop, for example, most cars are computerized now. Say a modern; you have a modern car. You may have an old car, so not the old car, but a modern car. You take it into the shop, or you have a repair person come over to fix the H V A C, the cooling, whatever, in your house. Um, the last thing you want to hear them say is like, "Well, I'm just going to have to start experimenting." Okay, that's like the last thing you would ever want to hear. That's kind of the point of that. And then the third thesis, um, I really feel a little self-conscious about this. I don't think I made the point very well, and I think it's a really good point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to restate the point of the third thesis from sermon one in the form of a question. This is just a hypothetical. Okay, this is just a hypothetical. I'm not trying to make a case for certain any belief or assumption or anything. Just a hypothetical. If if it were the case that science accumulated evidence to affirm that we are all living inside of a computer simulation. If that happened. (coughs) Would secular geologists and evangelical Christians still argue about the age of the earth? Okay, Sermon 2. Sermon 2, we kind of went to the other end of the spectrum and we looked at examples of God's wrath. God's wrath. Of course, exhibits of God's wrath are special examples or special cases of divine intervention. God is divine. Many occurrences, a large part of God's word is um, a telling of how God has sort of shaped history. We understand that. And you could argue that natural revelation... Um, we see that too God's hand I think we can sort of all believe that is sort of guiding the course of our lives and the lives of the people around us not that big of a deal but God's acts of God's wrath um, for whatever reason are really subject to a lot of scrutiny and criticism by non-believers it is certainly true that they're really visceral a lot of them they're um, very difficult to be sure Um, uh, but they're also instructive and they're historical. And as difficult as some of these episodes may be, whether it's just an isolated personal encounter like with Uzzah and the Ark, or whether it's catastrophic and largely geographical on scale like the cities of the valley, or even bigger yet, the flood, we looked, and I'm not a biblical scholar, I've said this, one of the rules of public speaking is you should never apologize about your topic, but I really want to make it clear i 'm not a biblical scholar. It was not difficult for me to find the underlying reason why God intervened in that way. It was not difficult <clears throat> and so it always surprises me like if you ever looked at i don 't know if anybody 's ever i don 't want to do a show of hands, but uh, there 's something called the rational wiki, and they kind of make kind of poke fun at these acts of god 's intervention and they kind of, it's almost like a satirical thing, which is funny because it's called the Rational Rational Wiki, but it's completely irrational. They're just sort of just having fun. It's like, if, and a lot of those guys are a lot smarter than I am. Like orders of magnitude smarter. If, if like I can figure out, can't they? Like, would be like, an, like, well, this is an interesting topic. Let's actually look to see, and it turns out that absolutely there is there is a common value. A common message that God reaffirms and repeats through his actions, whether they be tragic, whether they be um, reward, it's the same set of core values repeated over and over in the Bible. And we segue into Sermon 3, how people think. And um, I I think that this may have been, and this is only Sermon 5, we're not going to go into Sermon 4, so 3, um, it's not a big statement to say. I think it's probably how people think. Um, I started by saying how you think, but then I thought that's a little bit presumptuous. Um, it probably the most esoteric of the four that um, we've entertained so far. Um, but it—it it, how you think, Sermon 3, definitely reveals a symptom of modernity. And it goes something like this the proceduralization of society through social and political constructs, which was the emphasis of that sermon. And also technology, which we did not talk about in Sermon 3. We did not introduce that. That's a really big part. We touched upon it in Sermon 1 when we talked about the people who were working with uh, the integrated circuit machine, manufacturing machine. <clears throat> the proceduralization of society through Social and political constructs fundamentally shapes the way people and societies interact, or perhaps more accurately, fail to interact, fail to interact. So there are two points, two points here. Um, Damon has repeatedly emphasized the revelation that God's revelation is a complete story. It's a, it's a story,? Okay? It has a beginning, middle and it has an end. And you have actors and events. That are through across maybe great expanses of time, all woven together. And the sort of the metaphor that I used in sermon three was the whole mosaic. You know, you get really fixated looking at one particular tile and seeing what that tile looks at. But God's revelation is an entire mosaic. Point two: I'm calling this "You cannot get there from here." Basically, that road that you're on. Speaking of the humanist, that narrative, tying it back to that narrative, that road you're on, secular humanist, idealist, isn't going to take you where you want to go. Humanist idealism requires the same ingredients that humanist societies destroy. The exact same ingredients that humanist societies destroy. Humanist ideal wants all these great things to come internalized from sovereign individuals, and we're not sovereign. And we can't even administrate or correctly bureaucratize even the most trivial human activity. God willing, if you ask me to come back, we are going to elaborate on Sermon three. We're going to talk about biblical perspective of social constructs and just a historical, maybe modern postmodern consideration of social constructs, kind of in the spirit of the third sermon. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father. I'm always so grateful to be able to hop in my car and come to this building on Sunday morning. It is going to Sunday school was something I dreaded when I was a kid and I look forward to this all week. And even more honored and delighted that I would be given the privilege for better or for worse to get up the pulpit and have an audience get feedback, um, present some ideas, like I said, for better or for worse. I'm very grateful for this building and incredibly grateful for the friends that I have here and Damon's Instruction. It's a gorgeous building. Titus and Scott's really hard work. Always keeping things, just looking just beautiful and just every every day I come in here, just maybe it's just my imagination. Maybe it's... Um, just the way I've come to become attached emotionally to this building, or maybe it's actual physical um, kind of <laughs> backbreaking work that Titus is doing. Every every Sunday it looks better than the Sunday before. Um, it was six weeks ago from today that um, two of my colleagues, Jeff and James, visited, and when they visited, um, they sat at the pew there, the the bench. And they, we took up the three of us had took up the entire bench, and um, Mike came in and um, suddenly realized, you know, that's where he sits. There was a King of the Hill episode where, sort of, this, uh, the sacrosanctity of where you sit in church. And it's like I got my little spot in church, like, and we had taken Mike's little spot in church that he's had a bigger part of than I have, and. Um, God he didn't say a word I was trying to shuffle people over to make space for him so he could have a spot never stopped smiling he went and sat over on the other side of the pews and um, just an incredibly gracious guy just praying asked for he asked for um, during prayer thanksgiving father he would pray for other people very rarely pray for himself he always had other people's interests in mind and we know that you knew knew him and you know him from beginning to end and very grateful for having had the opportunity to spend time with him in the time that he was here and we're going to miss Mike Father in heaven be with us as we go through this coming week and give us strength let us understand and because we got very thick heads, maybe remind us that we depend on you in everything we do, in everything we have. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. we pray. Amen.